Welcome to the Power Podcast. Our world runs on power. We need power to light our houses, run our appliances, and drive our cars. When you feel blocked, stuck, or confused about how to move forward in life, what you need is power. Power to see clarity amid confusion. Power to focus through distraction. Power to break through barriers. And power to quit spinning your tires in the ruts of old habits. I'm your host, Malia Warner, and our 2020 theme is Power Perspective. These episodes are designed to empower you to create your best life by seeing things in a new way. Today is episode 94, Diabetic Ketoacidosis, what I've learned after four days with my daughter in the ICU. Hi friends, welcome. How is everything going for you? Today is an episode that one week ago I would have never predicted doing. Did you know, because I didn't one week ago, that November is National Diabetic Awareness Month? This year, just like I have every other year of my life, I probably would have let it pass without paying much attention until last weekend when our daughter at college helped us to become very aware of diabetes by going into ketoacidosis and becoming a newly diagnosed type 1 diabetic, the first in our family and in her extended family as well. So today I feel like there is a before last Friday me and an after last Friday me. As you might imagine, we have gotten an unexpected education in type 1 diabetes. Over and over last weekend, I found myself saying or thinking, I didn't know that. How did I not know that? And one of our ICU doctors said, tell people what you've learned. And I thought, well, we're all COVID isolated, so how do I tell people? And then I remembered, oh yeah, I have a podcast. So this could be a great episode to post on social media for National Diabetes Awareness Month or to email to your friends and family. And the reason I'm speaking about this today and one reason to share is because any one of us at any time can become type 1 diabetic, which I did not know that before last Friday. So today's episode, I'm going to keep it simple and concise as I share three misconceptions I used to have about type 1 diabetes and what I know now. I'm going to share our story and briefly explain the autoimmune disease that type 1 diabetes is, which I did not know. And I'm going to end the episode by sharing our personal experience and encounters with the impact of COVID-19 on ICUs and hospitals and how that is influencing our Thanksgiving choices for this coming week. So as always, thank you for joining me here today on the Power Podcast. And a quick announcement before we dive in is to make sure that you are subscribed for my weekly email, my Monday message email. You do that by going to maliawarner.com, hit the subscribe button, enter your email, Every Monday, I will send you a brief inspirational Monday message, as well as any news about new books, content, and especially what the podcast is going to be. There's some exciting things happening that I'm working on for next year to make this podcast really personalized to you and something that you can take and really apply and notice a difference in progress in your life by listening to this podcast, because my goal is that we grow, we rise together. 
So if you are already on my email list, thanks for being my friend. I love to see your name pop up in my inbox. And if not, I would love for you to be part of my Monday message community. Okay, so let's dive into three misconceptions that I, before last Friday, had about type 1 diabetes. And maybe you have these same beliefs or understandings, and maybe you're going to think, oh my goodness, how did she not know that? I don't know. We all have different life experiences. So number one, I used to believe that type 1 diabetes was a genetic disease. I believed that you were born with diabetes and that at some time, probably in your youth, that it would either turn on or maybe you would be lucky and it would never turn on, but that only people that were born with this genetic disease would ever become a type 1 diabetic. Misconception number two is I believed that it was only youth, that it only popped out, it only manifested in youth. Sometimes babies, toddlers, seven years old, sometimes teens. In fact, growing up, I heard it called juvenile diabetes and only occasionally and more rare would an adult get it, which I do have an aunt that during a pregnancy was diagnosed. And I remember the family reunion when she came and she was showing everyone her bruised arms and stomach from giving herself all of the shots. And I remember my uncles teasing her for getting a juvenile disease and kind of, you know, they're just a funny, a funny group of guys and razzing her for being immature or, you know, being so juvenile that she got a juvenile disease. So I really believed that it mostly happened in children and then occasionally more rarely it could manifest for adults. So those two misbeliefs that type 1 diabetes is a genetic disease and that it only manifests in youth obviously led to my third misconception that me nor anyone in my family would ever become type 1 diabetic. It was never on my radar. I've never worried about it for myself, never considered it for any of my children. It's really not genetic in my family. I have an aunt and she married into my bloodline. I do have one cousin, but on that side of the family, I have 65 cousins. So one in 65, I wouldn't have counted, you know, a genetic probability. So I really had this misconception that this would never be anything that my family encountered. On all of the medical forms, for all of the pediatric visits, I marked, you know, that diabetes was not a genetic thing in my family. So that is what the before Friday me believed. Now, post Friday me knows and understands these three things. Number one, type one diabetes is an autoimmune disease. So that number two, it can strike anyone at any age at any time. And meaning number three, me, my husband, any one of my children can become type 1 diabetic at any time. I'm going to talk the nuts and bolts about type 1 diabetes, beta cells, ketones, diabetic coma a bit later. But first, you want the story, right? What happened? How did this all go down? What were the signs that we missed? You know me, I believe that stories are the most powerful teachers. And so my daughter has given me permission to share her story here on this podcast. She's such a good sport as my family often becomes with me doing this podcast. 
And of course, I will give you an update of how my beautiful girl is doing right now. So the once upon a time begins on Halloween night this year when she threw up. So we all just assumed it was the pizza that she and her roommates had consumed and they were making caramel apples. And I just imagined there was a lot of candy involved. Now we know she didn't eat any of the caramel apples or any candy even, but we thought maybe there was food poisoning from the pizza or that she just had a stomach bug and she wasn't showing any COVID symptoms, which that's the first thing everyone's thinking about, right? She was sick all weekend. She kept throwing up all weekend. It wasn't a 24-hour bug. It didn't really go away. By Monday classes and the next week of school, she was doing better in parentheses. And then the following Monday, she and our oldest son, her older brother, who was also at the same school with her, went out to fast food and they ate Wendy's together. And after that, she threw up. But she never told us that. And then Friday morning, she threw up again. And that afternoon, she sent me a text that read, hey, I think something is still up with me. I threw up after class today, parentheses, I threw up on Monday too, but I'm not exactly sure what to do because there are gaps where I feel fine-ish. Now, the miracle here is, if you know me, I am really bad at answering my phone, answering, replying to text messages, and I can go for days without replying for a text message. And my son often comes home from school and takes my phone downstairs to play a game that he likes on my phone. And he had done that this Friday afternoon. And for some reason that I can't even remember now, I needed my phone. And I went downstairs about 1.30 in the afternoon, got my phone, saw my daughter's text within 20 minutes of when she sent it, and I called her right back. And my husband happened to be working from home because of COVID. And so he jumped on the FaceTime call too. And we could tell that she just did not look well. So I'm saying, well, you probably better go get a COVID test. And my husband's saying, you know what? Just go to the urgent care. They'll test you for COVID. They'll test you for everything. And he's texting our oldest son, asking if he could come take his younger sister to the hospital. And he happens to just be right close to her apartment runs over, takes her in her car, and they go to urgent care. They were only at urgent care long enough for her urine test to show sky-high blood sugar levels, and urgent care sent her to the hospital emergency room. We get a text from our son that says, we're in the emergency room now. The doctor is worried that she might have diabetes. And that was the first that that word ever came up on our text screen and in our minds. And it isn't too much longer later that we receive another text from our son that said she is confirmed to have diabetes and is in DKA, diabetic ketosis, something, something. He's trying to text it out. We're being moved to ICU to put her on an insulin drip. And at that point, we throw some clothes in an overnight bag, ask our other three musketeers if they can take care of themselves for however many days, and we drive the three hours to be with our girl. I just can't tell this story without mentioning that this is all happening on Friday the 13th of 2020. We will always be able to remember the date of our daughter's diagnosis, Friday the 13th, 2020. You can take that however you want to. I don't believe in unlucky days or unlucky numbers, but it is memorable. It will forever be seared in my memory. We arrive at the hospital. At that point, she has been moved from the emergency room into ICU. And 
We are fortunate enough that she's allowed two designated visitors and we are both able to be in with her all of Friday night. It is finger pokes and tons of IV fluids, lots of potassium going in and just trying to get her blood sugar levels regulated. Saturday morning, we're able to meet with the doctor for the first time. And of course, my question is, how did we miss this? As any mother would ask, how did we miss the signs? What happened here? And the reason it is so commonly missed is the signs are signs that could be associated with any flu or virus that you get. Being excessively thirsty, going to the bathroom often, nausea, vomiting, stomach pain, feeling weak, extra tired, having a shortness of breath, um, feeling confused. I mean, those aren't necessarily things that are so unusual that you would automatically think diabetes. One of the most helpful things while we were in the ICU was the visit from the diabetic educator. She was fabulous. If you ever happen to find yourself in this situation, please make sure you have a diabetic educator. They are specifically licensed. They specialize in diabetes. She came in and gave us books and pamphlets and taught us even drawing things up on the board. She's the one that walked through all of the equipment and the needles and the finger pokes and the monitors and just all of the paraphernalia that becomes part of your life when you are lucky enough to become a type one diabetic. So the diabetic educator was awesome. By late Saturday afternoon, they were able to take out all of the IVs and try to just manage everything through glucose shots or insulin shots. And she was able to eat her first food, her first meal that night with the hope to be released on Sunday. But blood sugars are a numbers game and she had a really low drop and a really high spike close together. And so the doctor wanted to keep her one more night for monitoring. I am really, really happy to report that she's doing fantastic. She, if you know her, is so terrified of needles and her first shot, watching her shake and be so nervous and go completely pale. She'll be so embarrassed that I'm saying this, but I just thought, how is she going to be able to manage this? And it's amazing. Humans are so resilient and the human body knows what it needs and it knows what it needs to do for survival. And she was able to do it. After that, she was able to give herself the shots, do the finger pokes, and she's a trooper managing it all so well. So one week later, we understand a lot more. I feel like we have a great foundation of support and she's getting on top of it, figuring it out. After she was discharged Monday, we were able to bring her home with us. And that's just the strange fortune of the COVID situation and that all college classes are offered online. And the fact that a lot of colleges and hers was, they are planning to be shut down between Thanksgiving and December holidays. Anyway, they aren't having any in-person classes because they don't want people going home for Thanksgiving and then coming back and spreading coronavirus. And so since she's just a week out from Thanksgiving, we were able to bring her home with us where we can keep an extra set of eyes on her and she's able to do all of her classes here. So a lot of little miracles in the midst of all of this. 
Now that I've shared our personal story, I'm just going to finish by giving a brief WebMD version of why type 1 diabetes is autoimmune and what triggers it and how and why anyone can get it anytime. And then I'll finish this episode by giving a little insight to what our personal experience was in the ICU with the impacts of COVID and what it means for us and the decisions that we're making for the Thanksgiving holidays. So my number one big aha paradigm shift in all of this is knowing that type 1 diabetes is autoimmune. It has nothing to do with weight or diet or lifestyle. Um, It's, you know, unlike type 2 diabetes, which is associated with what you eat and what your lifestyle is, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease these antibodies that attack your pancreas, they attack the beta cells that your pancreas produces, and it's those beta cells that produce insulin. And insulin is what allows your blood sugar or your glucose to be absorbed into the cells of your body. So they describe insulin as a key to open a gate. So all of your cells have a little door or a little gate. And when you eat, the energy from your food needs to go into the cells to be the energy to provide all of your bodily functions. And insulin is what unlocks the door, unlocks the gate for the glucose to go into the cells. But for some people, their own autoimmune system develops antibodies which attack the beta cells, so that they no longer produce these insulin, which means the body has no more keys to unlock the doors. So the cells are all locked. So here you eat, you have this glucose, you have the blood sugars in your bloodstream that need to go into the cells, but all of the cell doors are locked and there's no way inside. It's kind of fascinating, isn't it? The body is so miraculous how all the systems work together. What happens if you have this autoimmune disease is your bloodstream is packed with sugar, with glucose that cannot be used by the cells. So your cells are starving to death while there is a feast flowing in the blood right outside. Your cells need food. They need that glucose for energy. And so they begin to burn fat to get that energy. And the process of burning that fat so quickly produces ketones. And that is what causes the body to go into ketone acidosis. The process of burning fat is creating toxins, which are acidic, and it puts your body into this acidic state. And so that is why one of the warning signs for a type 1 diabetic is very rapid weight loss. And of course, we hadn't seen our girl for a month. And when we arrived at the hospital, she was already in the bed, in her gown. Anytime she got up to use the bathroom, she had that baggy gown on. And it wasn't until Monday when she was discharged and put on her regular pants, that I could not believe she was so thin. She had lost so much weight so fast. 
but she would not recommend diabetic ketoacidosis as a diet plan. It definitely has long-term consequences that aren't worth it. And now that she's getting insulin in her body, the doctors assure her that that weight should come back on. So the question really is, where do these antibodies come from? Why does the autoimmune system produce them? And is there a way to prevent our immune system from attacking our own pancreas? Some scientists believe that there are people who are actually born with these antibodies already, and for others, they might develop. They can stay dormant for years and not be triggered, not act up, not cause any real full-scale attack in the body. But most scientists believe that there is some trigger, usually an infection, most likely a virus, that triggers the immune system to produce these antibodies, or if you already have these antibodies for them to mass produce and become active in the body. And if you think about it, when we have a virus, our immune system goes into fight mode to attack that virus. And then for whatever reason, sometimes our own immune system gets confused. And instead of just attacking the virus enemy, it attacks its own cells. And that is what happens in this case, attacking the pancreas and the beta cells and so the insulin can't be produced any longer. We were asked by several doctors and the educator if autoimmune disease was in our family. And if you've been listening to the podcast any length of time, you know that I had been diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune disease where my immune system attacks my own thyroid. And they think that there can be a link or a higher possibility if there is autoimmune illness in the family, particularly Hashimoto's. But again, it's kind of still all part of that guessing game and not completely understood. So the last kind of sciencey thing to cover here is this DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis. And Can I just get a little applause for how rapidly I spin that off my tongue? When we first heard it, I could not say it. I could not remember it. I got it so tongue twisted. It's diabetic ketoacidosis. And it can happen in people who are already diagnosed diabetic. If they end up with a blood sugar spike, that can put them again into a DKA. And it can also happen for anyone who has not been diagnosed yet. And it's usually the first sign. It's usually the way that people know that they have this and they get diagnosed. DKA can be caused by infection, injury, a serious illness, missing doses of insulin shots, stress. Stress of surgery can also lead to DKA in people with type one diabetes. So my daughter was given lots and lots of warnings about if she ever gets sick, she has to just watch her blood sugar fluctuations like a hawk because now any other regular illness or any other surgery, pregnancies, hiking, altitude changes, all kinds of things really will have an impact on her blood sugar regulations. And that's why From now on, she is going to be monitoring. She's going to be a pancreas. She's going to be her own pancreas constantly watching and monitoring and adjusting for blood sugar fluctuations. So I hope this has been helpful 
enlightening. Maybe there's someone out here that this can help you prevent a full out DKA and watch signs and symptoms. If I could say one thing, it would just be go to the hospital. If you don't feel great, just go, go to the urgent care I grew up with. And I think a lot of us have this perspective that we just tough things out. We just need to be tough, tough things out, see how it goes. But an incident like this reminds me of how smart our healthcare system really is. We know so much about the human body. Well, I don't, but there are people out there who know so much about the human body. And the minute she walked into urgent care, they were right on top of it and zeroed in on something that I would have never guessed. So if you don't feel great, if someone that you love doesn't feel great, act early, act quickly, get in, meet with a medical expert and see what they can do for you. They really are amazing. So with that said, I just want to add a little insight from our personal experience and the impact of COVID-19 that we saw in the ICU and in the hospital in general. And I know every hospital, every clinic, every town is experiencing different things. And the hospital we were in is not a COVID hub. So their patients are largely sent off to another hospital. And, you know, there are confidentiality things. So we don't know for sure, but just from overhearing conversations, there was probably one COVID patient in the ICU, maybe a sprinkling of others uh, not yet in the ICU. The hospital we were in had 25 ICU beds, 21 were full. And on Sunday, that extra day that we stayed there, they had three new patients be admitted to ICU. Now, again, this isn't fact. This is all, I'm probably really cranking the rumor mill, but we knew that they were juggling some nurses and that our nurses were changing. And they ended up moving my daughter Sunday night out of ICU because she wasn't so critical anymore onto a regular medical unit because if they had one more admit during the night, they weren't going to have enough beds. And that was with one, you know, possibly the one COVID case in the ICU. And it just made me conscious of how very quickly an outbreak of intensive COVID cases can overburden our hospitals and our emergency care services. Uh, while we were there, they were pulling in some nurses from the labor and delivery floors who weren't trained for ICU, and they were really hesitant to go into the ICU. And the care that we got was fabulous, top level. I didn't feel like we were shortchanged in any way. I just became aware of how quickly that could have been a different story. And so for us, this Thanksgiving week, we have decided we are staying home. We are not visiting grandpas and grandmas. We're not visiting extended family. We're not eating in big groups. It will be a different kind of Thanksgiving. And I know our area has had some mask protests and I get it. I understand, you know, the the liberty and the freedom and, you know, not wanting to be told where to go or what to do or how to dress or what to put on your face. I get all of that. And I don't worry for myself about getting COVID, but I have decided I'm going to wear a mask 
and I'm going to stay home, stay put as much as possible because I don't want to burden our healthcare system. We were there, we saw firsthand how hard those medical specialists work. Our nighttime nurse was on the fourth of her seven in a row, 12 hour shift. And they put in incredible hours. And there are limited beds and limited trained ICU doctors and nurses. And very quickly, they can become inundated and overburdened and put in a situation where they are unable to give the level of care that they know that they can give and that they want to provide for all of their patients. So I don't know, and none of us know what will happen for the holidays next year, 2021. But for this year, if I can do my part to help buy a little time for a little more research to happen, to slow down the curve, to slow down the spread, to slow down and not overburden our hospitals, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to wear a mask. I'm willing to stay home, willing to Zoom and FaceTime our grandparents and loved ones if that can help to make a difference. In conclusion, I want to share three takeaways that I have in my heart from this experience. Number one, God knows us and watches out for us. It doesn't mean that God takes away any struggles or pains or illnesses in our life, but miracles happen and there are divine interventions that help support us and help us manage these situations when they come up. Number two, as you can tell already, we are so grateful for medical experts, services, insurance, healthcare, and the support that we have. People excelling at their jobs, doing their day-to-day job in such a marvelous way makes a huge impact for individuals and families, and we were the beneficiaries of that this past week. And number three, I love my girl. I'm so glad she's here. I'm so glad she sent a text that she wasn't feeling well. I'm grateful that my son was there to get her in and get her help and that we're where we are today. It's nice to have her home where she can work on her college classes and assignments online. I have to say it's a bit like when she was a newborn and I just wake up in the night worried and I go in and I look at her and I she has a little monitor on her arm that I can just scan so I can scan her blood sugar levels. And last night she said, mom, you don't have to wake up. I have my alarm set. I will check. And I know, I know she's old enough to do this. I know she will be doing it, but it's just me that I just wake up and I go in and check on her and hopefully we'll get a pattern and get over that so that we can both sleep through the night. But hug your people. If you have them there in person, hug them in person. And those that you can't see in person, give them a FaceTime call, give them a Zoom call. So glad that she's here and we really are doing well this week. Thank you, friends, for tuning in and listening. I hope that you've learned something helpful about type 1 diabetes today. If you don't receive my Monday message weekly email, head right over to maliawarner.com and sign up for that because I have some special content in development for the new year. As always, be safe, stay healthy, have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, whatever that looks like for you this year. I'm Malia Warner. I will meet you back here next week for another great episode of The Power Podcast.